and 20 minutes before we kind of wrap um, for our first major break of the day at lunch. Um, I want to spend a little bit more time talking through Jesus from a content and context perspective. So Robinson breaks this idea down. Um, they're kind of our two major components um, to exit Jesus of the text, right? The first one, we've already been talking a little bit about both of these. The first one is context. So we're going to deal with the right-hand side of the screen first. Context, and then the other is content. And we're going to spend about 10 or 12 minutes talking through these, and then we're going to go ahead and begin to talk about how do we develop our big idea. Okay, how do we develop sort of our big idea, our big exegetical, and then our big homiletical idea, okay? And so the big idea ends up being the principal issue that you're dealing with in your sermon, all right? So we're going to kind of work through the, the, the more detailed aspects of exegesis um, in terms of the content and context, talk about developing our big idea, and then we're going to break that idea into two pieces. The exegetical big idea, what is the text actually saying? And then the homiletical, which is how am I going to say yeah. what the text is saying in a way that's memorable and fresh, okay? And so we're going to break that. So we've got a little over an hour to do all of that. Okay. So here we go. So exegesis has, has again, um, for our purposes here today, think of it as two legs, all right? The first leg is context, all right? Context. Where does this passage of Scripture lie? All right? And there's a number of ways you want to think about context. The first, of course, is literary context. All right? Which means where in Scripture? Is this a New Testament or Old Testament passage? Is it gospel? Right? Is it a parable? This is what we call genre. Okay? What is the literary genre? Is it epistle? Letter of Paul? Is it apocalyptic? Like Revelation? Or parts of Daniel, Ezekiel, or some of some of some of Matthew 24 that we just read. Is it a parable? What kind of parable is it? Is it an end time parable? Is it an agricultural parable? All right, literary, literary, literary. Where does it sit within the text? Um, where is it in the flow of Luke's storyline? All right. We all understand, for example, that there are multiple tellings of the parable of the sower in each of the three synoptic Gospels. Mm -hmm. But they don't all have the same literary context. They don't all appear in the same place, not exactly, in the three Gospels. So learning about literary context, and we don't have anywhere near the time to get into all of this today. You have to come to the Biblical Exegesis class for this. But literary context says, what sort of sensitivities do I need to have to where these letters and phrases and sentences sit within the greater biblical narrative? All right? Again, is it gospel? Is it epistle? Is it where from a literary perspective? Okay? Um, is it a story? Is it a metaphor? Is it allegorical? All these different kinds of things, okay? Because there are rules, there are interpretive rules that are specific to each of those genres. We won't get into those today, all right? But that's part of literary context, all right? Historical context. This has to do partly with the literary. It's connected in the sense that, you know, the Gospels, of course, were written in a different historical time frame than, for example, the narratives of David, okay? So history there. But what historical context principally is dealing with is what is what we call the Zitzenleben, the situation in life 
What's going on? That's a fa fancy uh, oh. German word, okay? Come on, break it down. Sitz in Leben, situation in life, okay? What, 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 is the, what is the life situation that these people are living in? What was it like, for example, to stand on the Temple Mount and look out over Jerusalem and to hear Jesus say the things he said while my eyeballs were seeing a certain thing? What was that like? You see all of these stones... And he would have gestured, every one of them will be torn down. Wow. Yeah. That sounds different and it resonates differently if you're standing there looking at it yeah, than true. if you're sitting in Peter's yeah. mother's living room. So yes. true. Right? Yeah. That's just a very basic example. Okay? Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he saw men casting their nets into the lake. But they were, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Well, that rings really differently if you're holding a net when it's said. True. Right. You drop. I have to literally drop my net. Literally walk away from my father. Yes. That's very different than how John Landis hears it sitting out in the Roanoke Valley. It's just different. Yeah. Right. It's true. Historical context. What do we know about women? Well, and rights and roles and privileges and what was it like to be a woman in the Roman Church? Yeah. Because if you don't know that, I don't know. Jeannie knows, and I think Deb knows too, and I think Elena's learning about these things. You know? But if you don't understand that, you will be hopelessly lost in the whole head coverings conversation. Right. Oh, yeah. For example, okay, women okay. should be silent in the church. Awesome. That's not what that's about. Awesome. I'm sorry, I think you're recording. Bring it, bro. But there are denominations out there, there is a school of thought out there that thinks women should sure. yeah. literally be silent in the churches on the basis of that text. Wow. Historical and literary context are how we decide how we're going to read that passage. Yeah. If I don't understand what was going on in the church in sure. Ephesus, sure. or what Timothy or Titus were dealing with, I'm going to read that passage with a 21st century mindset right. or a male chauvinistic or a misogynistic mindset. So. And I'm going to put my ideas onto that text. I'm not going to teach what the Bible says. Right. right. Everybody understands though. Drink a little wine. There's, there's tons of obvious passages where this applies. Yeah. Whoa, let's drink a lot of wine. Let's handle some snakes. Let's, you know. See, all of you, all of you by your laughter, you already understand this to some degree. Right. Yeah. What I'm saying is we have to develop an yeah. additional level of sensitivity yeah. to these ideas, okay. right? So, the, so one of the important things about exegesis is to really delve into that world of first century Judaism. What was it like yeah. to, to live and walk there? What was, what was work life like? Right. What was farming like? Mm -hmm. How big were the houses? What was village life like in Palestine? And when you realize, for example, here, to back to our lost coin, when you realize that a Palestinian house in, in, this, in this part of the country, that the floor was made of basalt, a black rock, and that the windows were six or seven, seven feet off the ground and they were small slits, and that the doors had coverings of skins over them to keep insects, animals, and heat out, that even in broad daylight, this woman's house was dark, that sheds light on how easy it was to lose a coin that was very similar in color to the stones on the floor. Yeah. Right. Something simple like knowing that gives you insight. Right. Insight. Gives you insight. Historical context. What was the cultural and historical situation? Yeah. Right? 
John 4 is another very good example. Jesus' interaction with that woman at the well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Was it a supernatural thing that he was able to read her personality and know about her husband's? Or was it the way she was dressed, the time of day, the way she wore her hair, the way she carried herself, the personal pronouns that she used? Was it something in their interaction that he knew from standing there looking at her as a first century Middle Eastern woman that told him all he needed to know? Mm -hmm. mm. It's probably more that than that he was reading her mind. I mean, Jesus obviously does lots of those things. But this is where literary, this is where historical context is absolutely critical to your understanding yeah. of, of the text. Yeah. What's really happening? Another good example of this, Hagar and Sarah. Mm. Right? Genesis 16. Go and go and lay with my uh, go and lay with my uh, my uh, concubine, you know, my, my servant. <gasps> That's not immorality in the Old Testament world. That's a normal and acceptable way. Now again, there are extenuating circumstances in that text, but that, that would have been a normal and acceptable way to ensure progeny, to ensure offspring. This was common. All right? Think about this, though. How many of you guys saw that program in the Bible? No. Any of you guys have seen some of those? No. Did any of you guys see the episode where, where, um, where that narrative was, was illustrated? And, and Hagar's tent is steps away from Abraham and Sarah's tent. And so for Abraham to perform that act, he walked 20 or 30 yards away maximum, has intercourse with this woman, his wife, and then walks back into his wife's tent after the deed is done. That's a really different sense of it than he went down the road to Motel 6 or something. You know, It, it, it just wasn't like that. And there's a, there's a sense of emotional intensity there when you understand no these are skin tents this isn't like there's not doors closed and this is, yeah you see what I'm driving at here mm. right and so understanding those kinds of things building structures size of the streets mm. diet all these kinds of things that, that 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 play into what was it like to hear that story when I'm sitting by the Sea of Galilee mm. what was it like when I hear this parable of the lost son what was it like if someone left their father's estate and went to the country of the Gentiles? What did the family experience? What was that like? Very, very, very important. And you're thinking, well, how in the world do I learn all that? You read like crazy. All right, we'll talk a minute, in a minute about tools and where that information is available to you. But you read, 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 read. No one can tell you that stuff. I mean, some people can, but really you need to read it. And experience, okay? So that's context, literary and historical, okay? And then the other is content. And this one is where I think for, for, for most of us, and I think for especially some of you that are younger, this one is much more challenging because this one requires, um, a, you really can't do this without tools. You really can't do this without some language study. You're not going to be able to do this without software or lexicons or things like that. But context is, what does this word actually mean? Not the English word, mm -hmm. but the Greek or Hebrew word. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a very a simple, simple example that most of us are familiar with. You've probably heard it, heard it taught you know, in John 20 that the Greek language had multiple words for love. Mm -hmm. right. 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 Eros, phileo, you know, other kinds of words like that. And knowing the different words that Jesus is using there may or may not shed light on what exactly he's saying to Peter. In English, it's just translated love three times. Jesus uses different words there, Yeah. for example. Mm -hmm. 
And again, we don't have time to get into all of this today, but you know, we all understand that words change their meaning over time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? For Think sure. about the word, something really simple like cool. <laughs> in 1965, cool could describe your car. Right. In 1995, it described the temperature in your house. It's, it, it's, it has different kinds of meanings, right? Think about fat, yeah. and depending on how you spell it. Okay. It can be super insensitive, or it can be, you, maybe you want to be called fat, or maybe you don't want to be, these words change meanings over time, right? right? You guys all follow what I'm saying here, right? Oh, oh man, you know, it's really hot out. Oh, she's really hot. Words change meaning depending yeah. on context, depending on who's speaking to whom. Yeah, all right. true. Creek and Hebrew are the same, right? Words change. You guys think that's really funny, right? <laughs> like Evangelist, he just recorded him saying that. You think that's funny? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about H-A-W-T. Oh, hot. Okay. Or H-A-U-T-E. Hot. There's different. But you see what I'm saying, right? That even something simple like that. And Linda's like, oh, yes. That's how I think my clothes, you know? Oh, couture. That's me. <laughs> This would get edited out too. <laughs> right, right. Let's go. Yeah. But words change meaning, yeah. and, and also depending on who's saying them. Right. Who's buying the fish today? Peter says, "I am." <laughs> who's the Son of God? Jesus says, "I am." Mm. That's different. Oh yeah. Am, those are. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. those two phrases, depending on whose mouth is speaking it, mm. world of difference. Yeah. World of difference, okay? So this is the wonderful meaning of what's called semantics. Mm -hmm. What do words mean? Mm -hmm. Fine shades of meaning. And we deal with things called the semantic range of a word. What are all the possible meanings or nuances of this word versus that? The Greek language is, is very, very, very rich and very, very nuanced. And there are lots of, lots of different shades of meaning. Each one of them, many of them in Greek actually have their own word. Something isn't just green. Okay, it, it, it might be, I don't think, pick a great synonym for green, right? Uh, colors are actually bad, but you know, th things are... Like young. Hmm? Green as in young. Or yeah, green as in young, or green as in fresh, or green as in spoiled, mm. or green as in, she, he turned green. Mm. You know what I mean? Okay, so you guys understand how this works. So, mm -hmm. word meanings, and we'll talk about how you get those. And then there's grammar and syntax. Um, I think for most of you, and, and even for many of us, Grammar and syntax um, requires a knowledge and an experience with the original languages that many of us are just never really going to deal with. And let me make a quick comment about this. Sure. You know, and, and, and let me just kind of make a blanket statement here. I think generally speaking, if you're dealing with grammar and syntax in a Sunday morning lesson, you are in the weeds and you probably don't have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Come on. Well, so, I can there. count on one hand. <laughs> The number of times I've made a point, I can, in fact, I can count on no hands the number of times I've made a, based a point or a principle in a lesson on a grammatical construction in Greek. There's two right. reasons for that. It's not my native language and I don't understand the grammar all that well. Right. And these things are typically incidental. Okay? But again, for deep study of the text, you're going to want to be able to understand, well, what part of speech is that? Mm. Right? Greek has many different tenses. All right? They don't just have the same tenses that, that English does. Get into the weeds on all of that, okay? But all of these things are important um, for exegesis. So again, when you're studying your text, here's some great tools, all right, that you can use to deal with um, kind of literary and historical context 
in particular. We've talked about the importance of, of good translations, multiple translations, reading in different translations. We dealt with that at the beginning when we talked about careful reading of the text. Um, so reading multiple translations, um, obviously Bible dictionary, great tool, super important tool to get historical background. Okay, historical, and sometimes you get a little bit of literary context from, from something. So the, the, the most, the, probably the standard Bible dictionary out there is what's called the ISBE, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Um, there are obviously, um, we won't get into a long discussion about Bible software and tools like that. There are multiple tools like that out there. Um, I use Logos, most of us probably, I think, who pulpit preach a lot do. But there are other Bible softwares that are a lot less expensive than that and probably more accessible, um, both financially and in terms of the complexity of using them. But the ISBE is, is something that um, I would encourage all of you who do any significant teaching, if you teach more than once or twice a month, you probably ought to get yourself an International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. You can buy them on Amazon used, probably running between 40 and 60 bucks. So it's not cheap. But the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia is filled with articles. And so you can look up, for example, the city of Jericho. And there might be a three or four page article on Jericho. When the city was founded, what is its battle history? Who lived there? What was the, what was the primary business and industry? You know, what was its strategic significance? What was, you know, what really, you know, all kinds of information like that about the city itself. If it has geographical or topographical features, its elevation, where it was militarily, all of that kind of information is super useful if you're reading Joshua, for example, yeah, right. and the yeah. sack of Jericho. What do I need to know about Jericho that might add insight to what it was like to be Joshua doing this? Right. Or the hill country around there is interesting if you're looking, if you're thinking about, for example, a text where Jonathan is armor-bearer climbing the cliffs. What did those look like? How high were they? What was going on in that part of, what was going on geographically there? Okay, these are examples of where a Bible encyclopedia is essential. You'll get information there that you can't get anywhere else. Yeah. Okay? Where did I figure out, um, you know, when I was teaching out of Matthew 20, how did I learn all, that, all, the, all the different information that I pulled together about, about the Hebrew marketplace? Well, from my International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. That's where I learned all that stuff. Okay? Um, lexicons. Think of a lexicon as a dictionary for Greek, the Greek language, all right? So when we say dictionary in, in biblical exegesis terminology, we mean the Oxford English Dictionary, okay? Or a Bible dictionary, like the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. So the ISBE is a dictionary. A Greek dictionary is actually called a lexicon, mm. okay? And it comes from lex, which means word, okay? Um, so, uh, 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 yeah, word. Um, so it contains um, Greek words. Um, the uh, Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, and Danger, or the BAGD is a standard one. Um, for most of you, probably the, the TDNT, which is the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. All right, and basically this is just a, it comes in a four-volume set, comes in a one-volume set. Um, for most of you, probably the one volume is great. It's, it's called the Little Kittle. That's kind of its nickname. Oh. It's about, I mean, it's actually not that little. It's actually pretty stinking huge. Um, but what it has is it has all of the significant Greek words that are used in the New Testament listed more or less in alphabetical order. And in the Little Kittle, it's, it starts with the English word, and then it gives you all the variations and all the definitions. All right, so this helps you with word studies. Okay? Um, 
And then there are word study books. Um, you'll see a couple of them up there. The Weist's um, Word Studies in the New Testament is one that I use a lot. Um, I think that's actually alluded to on the videos that you have. Um, grammars, I think probably for most of us, let's not worry about that right now. But cross-reference is super helpful. The new treasury of scripture knowledge, a cross-reference is a tool that will basically say, look, show me every other passage in the Bible that deals with this same idea. Adultery, faithfulness, money, sheep. And it will literally kind of give you a laundry list of all other passages that are about that. The other thing that's helpful about the new treasury of scripture knowledge is it is um, sometimes it will give you thematic studies so you can say okay I want to know about sheep herding in general and so it will give you all the texts that deal with that even if they don't actually contain the word shepherd for, for example mm. okay so the new treasury of scripture knowledge helps you kind of pull together if you're doing a thematic study or a topical study on an idea you know I, I want to read up on first century investment or banking principles because I'm going to do the parable of the shrewd manager for example so the scripture of the treasury of scripture knowledge would give you dozens of different passages that dealt with that idea, and you could read about them biblically. Then you could go to your International Standard Bible Encyclopedia and read the article on money and money lending, and you'd have a really good sense of here's kind of what the Bible says about money and finance. Here's kind of what the cultural background was. Now I go read my parable of the shrewd manager and I read it in a different way. Well, Follow that? All right. So background information is huge. Cross-references, um, Bible handbooks, um, the Airman's Bible handbook, a little bit similar to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, not as exhaustive, but it will give you topical studies. You can study out a person, the life of Paul, and you would read that in your Bible handbook. Again, City of Jericho, River Jordan, um, things like that, okay? Um, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, all kinds of articles. The great thing about the Airdmans that I like, especially the digital version, but the great thing about the Airdmans is it has really good footnotes. Mm. And so, um, and they do a reasonably good job with their citations. So if you're reading through the Erdmans and you find something that's interesting, it will tell you where that information came from, and you can go dig that resource up and do some more digging on your own. So you can run down all kinds of rabbit holes, which I really like to do. Um, and then, of course, your commentaries, okay, your commentary sets. Uh, and several are listed up there. Um, the NICNT, the New International Commentary of the New Testament and its companion for the Old. Um, the International Critical Commentary is a more of a scholarly commentary, a lot of Greek. Um, that one's kind of challenging. Word Biblical Commentary. The NIGTC is a newer one that's really great. Um, the New International Greek Testament Commentary um, is particularly helpful because what it is, is it's sort of a, a commentary of commentaries. And so what it's, it's fairly recent. And it takes a lot of the best scholarship over the last 60 to 100 years, and it synthesizes it, and then it makes additional remarks. And so... For example, it may give you all of the big ideas and different things that have been done on a certain passage, and then it will add additional comments. And so it, in, in that sense, it functions a bit as a commentary of commentaries. Mm -hmm. um, it's extremely pricey. I think the set is $1,700. All right. Okay? So um, okay. it's crazy money. But you don't have to buy the whole set. You can buy them as individuals. But they're between $70 and $100 a pop. Okay? So they don't be cheap. Um, the Barclay is a great one, I think. The Barclay's commentary for a lot of you guys is super helpful. Really simple, um, great insights. The biggest challenge with the Barclay is he doesn't cite his sources. Yeah. All right, so you kind of read along and there's no footnotes. There's no, well, where did you get that idea? And you go, well, that sounds really good, but Barclay was a great New Testament scholar, but that particular publication doesn't have a lot of good footnotes and a lot of citations. So I think 
use it, but you know, if something seems a little bit overstated, you know, fact check it maybe with something more scholarly or call it or something like that okay. <laughs> and see how that all works, okay? Um, so we're kind of winding down exegesis here. Um, again, the purpose of exegesis is what? What is the purpose of doing exegesis? What does it help me understand? That's a question. James. Oh, what did the text mean then and there? Right. What did the text mean then and there? When the original audience read that or heard that, what did they say? And how do we come to that? What are the two disciplines that we talked about to begin to back up and kind of zoom out on that? How do we do that? Read, read, read. Read, 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 and then? Subject complement, right? We begin to evaluate subject complement, right? What did that pat what is being said and what is being or what is being talked about and what is being said about what's being talked about, right? And from dealing with the subject complement, you know, you begin to get that big picture idea of what's actually happening here in the text, okay? And then of course context and content, all right? This is not a biblical exegesis class. There's way more to say about all of these things. Um, and I think we've talked about probably making the BX class a prerequisite. For this one. Okay, so now I want to get into um, a fairly significant idea here, which is, yes? I just wanted to know if you knew any like, great websites we could use. Like, I use BibleSuite.org, but I don't know if they're... Oh, some great tool. Well, um, yeah, there's a few out there. Um, Olive Tree is a halfway decent Bible software, and I think it's relatively low cost. Does anybody happen to know what that one costs? Um, to actually get an account is free, if you need to buy all the stuff through I got my ISBE on that through that. It's pretty helpful. Yeah. So Olive Tree, I guess the the, um, the interface is free, but then you have to pay kind of a per a per um, a per purchase kind of fee. Okay. Amazon's usually cheaper. Amazon's usually cheaper. Olive Tree. Yeah. So buying uh, buying the digital books yeah, through Amazon. Yeah. yeah. So there are obviously Kindle versions, okay, of some of these books. Um, I tend to favor getting a Bible software package and then sort of adding to it because your better Bible software is integrate everything. Right, so Lagos obviously is kind of the Cadillac, okay? Come, I think I'm coming up on like 12 grand worth of stuff, okay? Um, but we're talking over like 15 years, okay? Many, many years of, of buying stuff, but coming up on something like that. Lots and lots and lots of money. But those are great because if, you know, and you guys can see it on the slide or the, the videos, but if you right-click on a word, all of my resources are all right there yeah. because they're all interconnected. But you pay a lot of money for that. But you know, Olive Tree is a good one. Blue Letter Bible is a good one. Um, isn't there, doesn't Crossway have, um, isn't there like a website? Bible Gateway. Bible Gateway, you know. And some of these, like Bible Gateway, um, some of these other blue letter Bibles, some of these, the other one that's, that's good is Bible.org. Bible.org. I think that's the Net Bible people, right? Yeah. Some of these actually, will, you'll find like the least, things that are out of, out of um, outside of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not out of print, out of, um, anyway, no, no longer uh, copyrighted, you'll find that those things are available. You know, so some of the dictionaries, some of the lexicons, you can find those for free. They'll tend to be old, outdated translations, and work, you know, so they'll read like they were written in the 19th century. Um, but a lot of those things are out there, and so you can find some pretty good stuff for free. Faith Life, um, the Faith Life Study Bible, is a Logos product, and I think it's like 20 bucks or something like that. And, that's interesting because it gives you access again to some of the Logos tools without actually having to buy the whole suite. Um, does anybody else have any other really? It's, it can be free. Yeah. Faith Life can. There's also a free version. So for a lot of these, there's things that are free. Um, for those of you that are seriously thinking about full-time ministry as a career or leading churches or doing a lot of preaching, I would strongly encourage you 
to think about investing in Logos or something like that, buy one of the base packages and begin to build your library, um, you'll find that it's a super awesome tool um, and, and can really help you. Um, it won't actually save you any time preparing your sermons. It will probably actually lengthen your prep time because you have so many resources. But you'll, you'll do a better job probably yeah. in the long run, okay? Yeah. James? This is um, a little bit technical and you may be covering it later, but I think studying and exegeting it is incredibly important. Is there ever a time where you can fall into too much exegeting? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And not just too much time studying it because you like it, but too much um, even background information or or Greek definitions for your audience where you then separate and, and the Bible becomes, you have to know this to really understand the Bible. How do we, you... Yeah, I think, that's, I think we always have to be careful of that. You know, like, like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm, how many Greek words have you had me heard me toss around in sermons in Pittsburgh? I mean, in five years. Yeah. Dozen? No, probably more like 20. <laughs> probably more like 20. But in five years, that's actually not that many, right? That's so, not many. Not a hundred. That's once but... a quarter. <laughs> yeah, once a quarter. That's pretty good, you know? But I think we always have to be careful, right, that we're... That we're that the, that the goal of exegesis is the illumination of the text, not to show how smart we are, right, right. not to know lots of stuff, right. or not to be clever. Um, and I happen to think, and I, I may be a violator of this, you can ask the guys in Pittsburgh, but I happen to think that really good exegesis should almost be invisible. That the lesson should just kind of stand out there. And all the work that you did behind it should, should be invisible. That's a good point. Right? Wow. You should just go... Wow, that, that really made sense. People shouldn't be thinking about, wow, that's an interesting fact. If they're thinking about that, you probably presented it the wrong way or you went too deep. You know, the facts aren't important. But, but taking all those facts and weaving them into a story. Yeah. And this is where we get into homiletics, and we'll talk about this later. So the big idea. The big idea. So the first thing we want to do with the big idea is, as we do with everything in Jesus. What was the, the idea there and then, right? What, what did Jesus' original audience hear him say? What was the big idea? So let's talk a little bit about how we get there, okay? So the first thing you want to do um, is you want to ask this question, the one that's behind us here. What did the author intend to say to his original audience? So let's go back to Luke 15, where we've been. Okay. And uh, again, who is the audience for Luke 15? We talked about this before. Who is the primary audience? Is it the disciples? No. no. Is it us? No. Is it the first century church that Luke wrote this for? No. No. Who is the original audience for Luke 15? Pharisees. Pharisees and teachers of the law. In what frame of mind? Murmuring. Murmuring and grumbling. And right? They got a heart problem. Okay. So the the first the, the first step towards finding the big idea in Luke 15 is. How would those Pharisees and teachers of the law have felt? What would they have heard Jesus say? How would they take this challenge, this assault? If you, mm. What were they thinking when he wrapped it up again? In verse 31. You, you have to celebrate, in verse 32, you have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. <laughs> That's right. They're thinking, how, how, how are they feeling about that? Frosted. Yeah. Irritated. Yeah. Angry. Upset. So, purpose, when you preach the sermon, your Christian should be frustrated, yeah. angry. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but they, they, they reacted to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They reacted to it. Of course they did. Because Jesus took something that they had depersonalized, and he made it personal, and they didn't like it. Yeah. 
He showed them the way that they really viewed the lost, and they didn't like it. All right? So what Jesus was getting at, so what we want to try and do is we want to say, okay, so if Jesus is, if that's the tension there, if that's what they were feeling, how do I bring that sentiment? How do I bring that idea? How do I bring that, that tension? How do I bring that into a 21st century Christian church and help them have the same conviction? Mm -hmm. That's why we preach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The job of expository preaching is to take that and bring it here. Right. Come on, Brad. That's our job. If you preach for a living, that's your job. How do I, and so I go, like we've said, I go back there and I figure that out. Now I've got to begin to bring it forward. This is where the outline and all these other kind of things that we're going to talk about this afternoon. But so, so we've, we've gone backwards in time. We've done our word studies. We've looked at content and context. We've done our subject complement. We've boiled this all down. We've put ourselves in the shoes of these Pharisees. We've understood what Jesus is saying. And we go, wow, these people would have been super convicted, super irritated, really challenged by this idea, deeply convicted because they realized that they had lost, they had lost their ability to be the shepherds of Israel and Ezekiel, that Ezekiel 34 challenges them to be. They had, they had, it wasn't personal anymore. Israel wasn't, they weren't their children. It wasn't their money. They weren't their sheep. They, they were these people that you hang out with. They had distanced themselves. Mm. And so, oh, okay. So that's the big idea there and then, all right? So if that's what it meant to them, how do we bring this forward? Well, we talked about this. Subject and complement. What's actually being said? Back up. Back up to 5, 10, 20,000 feet. What's happening here? What is actually being said? What, who's Jesus saying, listen. You guys have failed to love people the way that you need to love them because you've somehow separated yourself from their everyday experience. Right. You know, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the hard-heartedness of a group of leaders who had depersonalized the mission. Everybody follow that, mm -hmm. right? That's what he's talking about. What is he saying about that subject? He's saying, look, you need to re-engage. You need to search like it's your money. You need to love like it's your son. You need to wait on the porch for them to come home. You need to engage. And oh, by the way, because even though you're the older son, God still engages with you. Mm -hmm. Everybody follow that? Yeah. From the first video section? All right. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you Pharisees have lost your heart for Israel because you've distanced yourself from them. What is he saying about that? There's three ways to get that heart back. Pursue it like it's my sheep, regardless of the risk. Look for it like it's my money, even though it's dark in the house. Love that son like it's my own, because God still loves me as his own, even though I'm messed up. Mm. You see how I'm developing that? Does everybody see how I got to that? Yeah. yeah. Yes, we're here. I mean, as we're talking about the big idea now, are we talking about the homiletical idea or the still the We're talking about the exegetical idea, the big exegetical idea, right? So let's look at some examples of this, and I think we're gonna we're gonna we are we're here in Luke 15. So it's good that we've been we've been we've been leaning on this, right? So we talked about this. Big idea in the parable of the lost coin is what? What's the big idea? Remember, we got subject, complement. So the subject is what? What did we say the subject was for the lost coin? 
I mean, there were a bunch of them. Give them God's, God's diligent pursuit of the lost. Um, phrase it as a question. Uh, how does God respond to the lost things? Yeah, how does God respond to lost things? Answer? With diligence. And with urgency. diligence and hot pursuit, right? Okay, great. So, how does God respond to lost things with diligence and hot pursuit? How would you come up with a big idea from that? How would you combine the, that question and answer into something that you would preach on? Um, you could relate it to us. Like, is our perspective of lost things the same as God's? And how do we get there? Almost. Let's try it again. Um, does our perspective of lost things reflect God's perspective? Um, don't frame it as a question. Make it oh, a statement now. Okay, statement now. Um, God pursues things in this way, and we should too. Yes, I think that would be something like, right? God loves and pursues the lost like it's his own. Let's do the same thing, right? Something like that, right? Mm -hmm. All right, so, so subject, compliment, question, answer, and then synthesize. Okay, so how do I, what's the statement that I make about this, right? Let's try it again with the same parable. Um, Howard, what do you think? Subject, lost coin. What's another way of framing it? Um... What, what is the extent that God will go to find the lost? I like it. To what extent will God go to find something that's lost? Answer? Do whatever it takes. Do, do whatever it takes to find it. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's great. That's perfectly fine, right? To what extent will God... He's, it's the same idea. He's just reframing it, right? This is, this is his sermon now, right? So, to what extent will God search for lost things? He'll do whatever it takes. So, your big idea is what? What is this passage about? Um... That God would do anything to... You're, you're on it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. God would do anything to find you if you're lost. Yeah, God would do anything to find something lost, right? That God goes to great lengths to find something that's lost. Or that God would do anything to find something that he lost. Or maybe you say God would do anything to find something he lost because it's personal. Or, yeah. but that's right. See, so you see how we got... So that's your big exegetical idea. What is this passage saying? It's saying that God pursues things that are lost like they're his own. Right? That's what it says. How do we know that? Well, because the, the, the audience tells us that, and our subject and compliment tells us that. Let's do it with the lost sheep. Let's, let's take this again. Let's do this section. I know, I know we did it earlier. We're going to keep doing it. This is the toughest part. Yeah. Backing up. Not, not going right to my points, but backing up. What's happening here? Sub, subject for the parable of the lost sheep. Maybe behind us. No, it's not. So I'll put it up there. Here's, here's Ed's. How does God view sinners? Answer. He diligently pursues them so that they'll return to him, and he celebrates that. All right? In many ways, that could actually be the subject and compliment for, for all of these. Yeah, sure. For all of these parables. Does everybody follow that right yeah, there? There, yeah. there is a bit of that. Mm -hmm. um, here's another example. Uh, oh, we won't get to Ephesians 1 yet. You guys, we're still, we're still wrestling with uh, Luke 15. Let's try this again with the lost sheep. Let's do this exercise again. Austin, it's your turn again, I'm afraid. Um, so, for the lost sheep subject, what, what, what would be your question here? Again, don't, don't think too hard. I mean, like, don't, don't, overthink, no, don't overthink it. You know, just, just, what do you think? I mean, I keep coming back to the simple, like, how does God view the lost? Like, I can't. But this one's a little bit different. So how about, how about this? How does God feel about things that wander off? Oh, 
right? Again, same idea, but, but the coin kind of rolls away. This is an inanimate object. This is actually something that there was some volition, there was some will that actually maybe wandered. How does God respond to things that wander away? Interesting, yeah. Right? Answer? Yeah, he goes and pursues them, even at great risk to himself, right? And to get that, you know, you just discussed shepherding and what it was like to walk in the wilderness and go three days by yourself, and, you know, you'd have to do some other things. But, but sure, you know, how does God feel when things wander off? He leaves other things to themselves and goes in searches of the one lost. Yeah. yeah. Right? Again, that's a statement about God's priorities. You guys see how I got that, mm -hmm. right? What does he do? He leaves the 99 to pursue the one. How does God feel about things that wander off? Mm. He prioritizes them over other things that seem to be doing fine at the moment. Yeah. Again, I'm not sure how preachable that is, but you get the idea, right? So, John, what would the big idea then be from, from the parable of the, of the lost sheep? Big idea? Uh, what's, what's that passage most clearly, distinctly, basically saying? That God will... God will search intently for those things that wander rather than those who are stationary. Okay. Sure. God will search intently after anything that wanders off. God cares for the wandering. Mm -hmm. God cares about those who go astray. Mm -hmm. God loves those who go astray. God doesn't give up on those who go astray. Any of those kinds of things could be a big idea from this. Do you guys following all of that? Yep. I know it's... I know it's Mid-morning, and you're kind of yeah, in, in a glaze. Right, you're yeah, hopefully, maybe you're yeah. crashing from the donuts or something. Yeah. Does everyone see how we got to that? That yeah. there are there are numerous possible big ideas here, but they're all around this idea of lost and found, or how God responds. Right. Okay, right. there, there there's a fence fence line here, but there may be multiple ideas within the fence. Okay, is right. everybody right. following that? I keep yeah. kind of coming. Yeah. I know I'm repeating myself. I'm doing that on purpose. Okay, okay. 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 it's important to drill on this. There's no other way to learn this. Repetition. There's no other way to learn this stuff. Let's do it again. Who yeah. else wants to take a shot at the lost sheep here? I James, come I on. Know, but I have a question. <laughs> okay. uh, so, if, if there's one, what you're saying is there's more than one big idea. More than one possible big idea, or more than one way of stating it, but, the, but, but within within certain limits, right? Yeah. So, it's, I think, uh, originally when, it's, when you said uh, it cannot mean what it didn't mean there and then, yeah. what we're saying, looking back 2,000 years ago, is there's a handful of things that could have meant there and then. There are definitely clear things that could not have meant. Correct. There's a handful of things that it could have meant. And yeah. it's okay to, as long as you stay in the fence, kind of stay in that fence pick line. the right big idea. Sure, right. Otherwise, we'd all preach the exact same sermon out of this text every week, which, which we don't. Right? Everybody brings their own right. angle to it. Right. right. And I think what you'll also find, and again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but what you'll find, excuse me, is that you do more and more background reading and you do and you learn grammar and syntax and you, you'll find that you'll find different nuances to the big idea that aren't obvious when you just read the text in English. Alright? So and I think again, I think a big idea is this. It's what the text meant, but there's a couple of ways to get at that. There's what were they feeling? What were they thinking? Mm -hmm. Were they offended? How did they respond? It's not just what they heard, but there's other, there's other kind of first century ways of understanding that, right? right? It's not just what they heard, but how it made them feel, or what it made them think, or what it made them do, or whether it shut them down, or whether it embarrassed them. I mean, there's, there's different ways, okay, of getting at that. Um, let's also look, um, here, Ed, Ed gives us a great example here. Let's go over to Ephesians 1, okay. all right? I know we've been camping here in Luke 15 for a while, but let's look at this one. 
Or at BIE. No, fair enough. If we have to go BIE after lunch, it's fine too. We'll be alright. Okay. We've been kind of drilling a lot on subject complement and just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, let's start in verse 3. Somebody want to read 3 through 10? Nice and clear. James, that'd be great. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he has chosen us in him before the creation, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And isn't that like one compound sentence in Greek or two? It is. It's, it's just one, yeah. That's, that's, right, this is one of the, maybe the longest sentence in the New Testament, I think, is isn't it? it, or something like that? Right, this is a huge... Can't even take a breath. Right. <laughs> that's what makes this one difficult. Yeah. Right, even in the English, you get this sense of, that there, there's just an awful lot of words going on here. All right? Let's, let's see if we can't break this down. Okay, even just, just in English. Let's see if we can't break this down a little bit. Let me give you a clue. Um, any conjunctions or any... Um, so let's think about this. This is a very, very, very long sentence. Okay, one Greek sentence. Let's think about that for a minute. Do any of you or have any of you ever spoken a very, 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 very long sentence? Yes. Oh, yes. yeah, sure. Yeah. I write that way. <laughs> what is your frame of mind when you're doing that? I just want to get everything out. Yeah. yeah. Right, that there's a, what, what, what is it, what, Jeff, what's happening when you? You're trying to build a case, trying to um, overwhelm your reader with like this, what you're feeling. Yeah, there's almost a sense of trying, kind of pouring it on here, right? Yeah. Like a closing argument or something yeah. like that. You're almost speed talking, right? That there's an awful lot inside and trying to get it all out. Right. Right. right? Mm -hmm. We've all had that experience. So let's think for a moment. How does that impact my interpretation? Forget the words on the page, just that fact. How does that fact inform my interpretation of this, this, this text without even knowing what Paul's saying? What, what might I assume? Yes? Maybe that the main point is at the end? Ah, maybe that the main point is at the end? And, and, and so what else might I assume? That, Elena? Yeah, there's a lot of passion in this, right? Matthew 28. <laughs> right, and there's a lot of words. And those words represent a lot of passion, but maybe the meaning is ultimately really, really simple. Mm -hmm. Right? What were you going to say, Howard? Um, maybe when Paul is so long-winded because the people in Ephesus just needed a lot of correction, Paul just needed to slay it out. It could be, because maybe it's a little bit bottled up here. 
Look at the very first sentence. What does he say? What is, if, forget the rest of it. Forget from verse 4 on. Just look at verse 3. What would be the subject of verse 3? Just all by itself. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Praise be to the God. Frame it as a question. Subject would be? How has God blessed us? Why should God be praised? Why should we praise God? Right? Why should we be fired up about God? I think that one works better, given that this is a long run on sentence. Right? There's emotion in it, and he kind of spits out this huge long sentence. Right? You like that sound effect? Is really great, huh? Yeah. Why should we praise God? And why should we praise God? Think about the rest of this. Say again, Elena. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What about all the rest of it? What about verse 4? What about verse 7? We have this, we have that, we have this, we have that. What are verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10? What are those things within this sentence? What are those things? Those are the blessings that we've been given. And so from a subject complement perspective, in some ways are superfluous to the main idea of the passage. All right, everybody follow that? Yeah. This one seems really, really complicated, but if you step back from it and go, what's actually being said? Paul's saying, I praise God, he's given me every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then all he really, for, he did, he chose me, yeah. he made me holy and blameless, he predestined me. This is just a laundry list of what those things are. This yep. is not as complicated as it seems. Right. That's following that. That's and, and the rest of it's just a list of how he did those things. Yeah. Right. He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. This, this idea works in Romans as well, by the way. Yeah. Where there's laundry lists of big terms. Like, yeah. Let me just step back here. What, what did he just say? Right? About grace, for example. Okay? So here, here we come to it. The subject. Why should we exalt God? Because he's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. The rest are just examples. What would happen to someone trying to prepare a lesson on Ephesians 1, 1 through 10, without doing the exercise we just did? Oh, boy. Hey, that about sums it up. Oh boy. <laughs> what would happen? You get in the weeds like crazy. You could pick any one of those things. You pick any one of those things and run down all kinds of rabbit holes, yeah. right? And you can really get tangled up, right? So again, subject complement, coming up with a big idea, it, it simplifies texts that otherwise seem really complicated. And that's the idea, right? Rises like a clear August moon. Because what you want to preach is that one clear idea. You can't preach a laundry list of things in a 30-minute sermon and get anywhere. People go, wow, Jesus has given me a lot of things. But they won't have a single thing that they can latch on to and actually do anything with. Right. I saw a hand. True? I was going to say, in general, um, wouldn't it be a safe bet to have that topic sentence of the paragraph kind of give you, because the Scottish pre-scholars are sitting at, like, this is a different topic, so let's do a paragraph break. So it's kind of our way of knowing the topic sentence will give us a hint as to what the subject is. Well, that's dangerous because um, the, the, the Greek scholars actually aren't the ones doing that. The translators are actually doing that. And then the typesetters also have something to do with that. 
So um, the paragraph breaks in your English Bible do not necessarily are not necessarily a good way to go at go at that actually at all. It happens to work in this case, but in many cases that actually won't be the won't be the case. Yeah. Um, again, I don't know the original languages, but in verse four, you know, when it, you use these four, he chose us, meaning you're you're linking it to the how can we how can we have confidence perhaps that it's been translated that way because that makes a natural step for me to think, okay, this ties to something before, which probably well, sure. is the subject. You find a therefore, you find a for, yeah. you find a as a result of, or because of, or yeah. for this reason. Yeah. You've heard it was said, but I say to you, right. you know, these, these transition statements. No, those are all right. Yeah, we, can, we can, you know, um, for is just gar in the Greek language, and there's a lot, Paul uses lots of gars. Yeah. There's lots of those. For, you know, again, Paul was, um, was uh, practiced at, at, at elocution, practiced at argumentation and logic, and so he typically builds on things. But I just wanted to illustrate this because this is a good example of something that seems really complicated. Yeah. True. But when we practice this discipline, it's not so complicated. All right? It is a discipline. It is a discipline, yeah. right? Practice. So let's go from there to the big idea. Okay. We, in other words, think of your big idea is this. This is how I tend to think of it. And it may state it somewhat differently, but the big idea is what I want people to walk out of Sunday morning remembering. If they don't remember anything else, if they don't remember any of my illustrations, if they don't remember my coughs or my sneezes or my sips on my drink or my fidgets or my ticks or my whatever else I do, if they don't remember any of those things, they walk out and they go, God is worthy of being exalted because he's given me so much. Mm -hmm. right? Your big idea is, think of it as your point of points. It's what you want people to walk away with. It's, it's what that text is ultimately about at the, at the biggest level. There may be, well, what are those blessings? How did God give me those? Why did God give me those? All, they may, that may all end up in your outline, but the big idea is God is worthy of exaltation because he's blessed me through his son Christ. That's, that's it, right? How should I view the lost? As something to be pursued diligently with all my heart like I own it. That might be your big idea for all of Luke 15, for example. Real simple, personal, it encompasses all the things that we discussed, but it says it in a way that's really, really, really simple. So everybody follow that? So your big idea is really the answer to your subject and compliment. How should I feel about the lost? I should diligently pursue them the way God does. Big idea, I should pursue the lost diligently and personally because that's how God does. Everybody follow that? Yeah. Same thing here. Why should we exalt God? Because he's given me every spiritual blessing in Christ. Big idea. We should exalt God because he's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. So it's a question and an answer. And then your big idea is basically a statement that, that connects those two things. Everybody follow that? Mm -hmm. Super important. For the last hour and a half or so, we've been talking about exegesis. This is the goal, right? This is, this is the big hurdle number one. Learning how to do exegesis, thinking about the text, grammar, syntax, all the subject complement, all the things we've talked about up to this point. This is what we're trying to get to. This is the first step in expository preaching. It's what's well, the first major step, right? All the others build together. What is this text actually saying to them? What did the church in Ephesus hear? When Paul, Paul, Paul wrote this to them. Okay? Let's look at another example. Now, these are tempting uh, and a little more challenging. Unlike a parable or something, um, 
something like the rich young ruler or Zacchaeus or things like that, they don't, they, don't always, they don't always seem to have the same immediate literary context, for example, as a group of parables like Matthew 25 or Luke 15, which are clearly sort of stacked upon one another. But here in Luke 18, um, let's just read this. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said, we've left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. All right, it's not a parable. It's not, it doesn't seem to be all that self-contained. Let's take a crack here at subject and compliment. What do we think this passage is ultimately, what question is it begging? What is it ultimately saying? Yeah, almost kind of restating what the what the rich young ruler said, right? You know, what how how do I go to heaven? Right? What's 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 a way to go to heaven? Okay, ignoring ignoring the fact that this guy's wealth entirely, right? In that sense, and just here's a person who wants to know how do I go to heaven? Answer. It takes everything. Say again. It takes everything. Can you expand that a little? You're you're in it. I mean, expand that a little bit. You're, you're, keep, keep, you're going in the right direction. Sometimes you got to say it three or four times. Like I find when I'm writing these things down, I'll write my subject three or four times, and I go, "That's it," and then I'll work on my compliment. Mm. Mm, no, that's it. You know, like you may have to do it a few times. So, what does it take to inherit eternal life? Or what is it? How do I get to heaven? What does it take to go to heaven? Answer according to this passage. Answer is. I, I think that I think it could be as simple as that. You need to give up anything that's in your way, mm -hmm. yeah. right? The fact that it was money for this guy, mm -hmm. secondary to the secondary to the subject and compliment, right? Yep. Those are the particulars. You may deal with those in your lesson. What are some hurdles to giving up everything? Well, for right. this guy, it was his money. But the but the main subject and compliment is not money. It's a guy asking a question. How do I go to heaven? Answer: You better make sure nothing stands in your way, <laughs> right? So let's. So Jeff, how would you turn that into a big idea? If the, if the question is how do I go to heaven, and the answer is make sure nothing stands in your way, or give up everything that, that's in your way, your big idea would be. In order for us to get to heaven, we have to be willing to give up everything. Absolutely, simple as that. To get to heaven, I got to give up anything that's in my way. Boom. 
So when your audience walks out of your lesson on Wednesday or Sunday, whatever else is in their mind, that needs to be in their mind. That's the big idea. The purpose of this lesson is to help my congregation or help my audience understand that if they really want to get to heaven, they got to be willing to do whatever it takes and get rid of anything that's in their way. Very simple. So everybody see how we got there? Right? The other details about Jesus' interaction with them and what specifically he said to them or his, his, personal, his personal issue was riches. That may not be everybody's issue. But what is a challenge for everybody is that something is in our way. Yeah. Yeah. And so your, your subject comment, your big idea, deals with all things that are in anyone's way. In this guy's, it happens to be wealth. But the principle is things get in our way, get them out of our way if we want to go to heaven. Everybody see how we got there? Okay. Let's look at Matthew 18. Let's do this one more time. Come on. Matthew 18. Subject compliment, big idea. <coughs> the only way to learn this is like this. <laughs> There's no other way. Drill, drill, drill. You know, read, 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 think, think, think. All right, so here we go. Matthew 18. I'll, I'll, for the sake of it's 10 of 12, I'll read this. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you bound... Uh, Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So my subject is, how do I pray? <laughs> Not what? Three of brothers sins against you. If two or three people come together, there am I with them. Isn't that about praying? Right. <laughs> heard that. But we've all heard that. You probably even thought it. Maybe you came in here this morning thinking it. Sorry to burst your exegetical yeah. bubble there, okay? <laughs> no. Well, so, Sean, what do you think? What, so, if your brother sins, what do you do if your brother sins against you? Yeah. What do you do if someone sins against you? Answer? Go to him. Is that all? Mm -hmm. Show him his faults. Mm -hmm. Higher. Back up. You're, 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 you're already in the specifics. Bigger picture. What do I do when someone sins against me? Think about the whole procedure maybe encapsulated. Take steps to reconcile? Yeah, take, take, take steps to reconcile. Take immediate steps to reconcile, right? Whoever, whenever, however, reconcile fast. Get right on it. All right? Again, let, let's take it one step further. Why? God takes sin seriously. So God takes sin seriously, right? He says, if you don't deal, deal with it here, I'll deal with it there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That my actions here echo in eternity, to quote Russell Crowe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Come on, that pulls us, that pulls Good us in. Quote. Yeah. See, and see, that can be one of my examples. See, I've jumped ahead to my default process, and I've already done it. And you got this, too. <laughs> if your brother sins against you, that's begging a question. Jesus is saying, if this situation happens to you, subject, what do I do if this situation happens to me? Mm -hmm. Compliment. 
deal with it as quickly as possible, getting as much help as I need. Right? Big idea. What do I do if my brother sins against me? Deal with it as quickly as possible, getting as much help as I need. What, 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 would, the, what would the big idea, Sean, for my lesson then be? We need to do whatever it takes to reconcile with the brothers who sins against us because God takes it serious. Absolutely. It can be as simple as that. Do whatever it takes to deal with sin because God takes sin seriously. Right? That's it. See? You go, well, that's really easy. It's easy in a passage like this that we know really well. <laughs> but this discipline protects us when we're in a text that we don't know as well. Or a principle that we haven't seen applied in our churches. Right? This one's kind of low-hanging fruit. Okay? Let's look at one that's a little bit more difficult. Let's look at John 4. All right, step it up. Okay? It's good stuff. But isn't this fun? It is. I get to do this for a living. It's awesome. Come on, Brad. It's really fun. It hurts the brain. That's right. Monday morning, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't, don't do this Monday morning before coffee, okay? But you, but you guys you guys can see how in a complex text or one that seems complex, mm. like that long Greek construction in Ephesians 1 or something that seems simple in Matthew 18, you apply the same rubric. It's the same discipline. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you come up with a perfectly clear picture of one very simple. And your big idea, if it's really complex or it has a, big, a lot of big theological words in it, it's too complex. Break it down. 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 Preach to your audience like they're reading the NIV, 8th grade. Okay, just right there. That's a good point. Preach to your audience in, in words that they can understand. Okay, big idea, exegetical mom. Here we go, John 4. We've got time for probably a couple more of these. And then we'll walk, uh, we'll walk to, to, through the process where we are at this point, and then we'll have lunch. So, of course, we know this text. Um, let's see, we're not going to, gosh... I'd love to read it. We're not going to. So hopefully we all are familiar enough with it. Um, that would obviously be our first mistake, right? We have to read, reread, reread, and reread. Let's just assume that we've read and reread and reread and reread the text, okay? Uh, I know a dangerous assumption, but let's just assume for the sake of seven minutes to twelve that we've done that. That's right. This is now our eighth reading in our third translation, okay? And we and we've got a, we've got a whole series of things. What is the subject. What is this passage about? What? How would we phrase that as a question? Again, I know we're stretching here because it's a longer passage and we haven't read it. So, Mo, what do you think? How did Jesus convert the woman at the well? How did Jesus convert the woman at the well? Right? How did he do it? Answer? Told her everything she did. Come on. <laughs> no, but how, how did he do it? Like, well, how would we answer that question? He patiently offered her a solution to her sin, right? That she could get some water. Yeah, he patiently offered her a solution to her sin. That, 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 that would work, absolutely. Now, there might be 17 others in here, but that would work. How did Jesus convert this woman at the well? Or how did Jesus convert a stranger? Well, he dealt with her patiently and met her where she was at until she figured it out. Big idea. We should deal patiently and gently with strangers until they can see God clearly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Make sense? Yeah. yeah. How about this one? How, did, how does Jesus deal with women in distress? Wouldn't that be a great subject for this? Yeah. What would the answer to that be? 
Go ahead. Uh, um, with patience and focus, not being distracted and exposing the big picture. Sure. Patience and focus. Or maybe with tenderness. Gentleness and tenderness. Not looking down on her for her past experiences, but helping her to see God's mercy. Mm -hmm. right. How about another one? What were you going to say? Subject compliment? Me? Yes. Um, how does God want us to worship Him? Um, in the big thing. I think that was, I think that was too, granular, too granular. The big idea, the big interaction here is Jesus with another person. Right? Okay. Jesus and this woman, right? What do you think? How about another one? Sure. Uh, where does Jesus see the harvest? If you wanted to go down to like 27 and more later in the chapter. Yeah, but I don't think that's the biggest idea here. I think, again, I think, we're, I think we're down in the weeds on that one. The big idea here is you have a woman who has a need. Jesus meets that need, and she becomes a follower. Right? That's, that's the, think, think again, think that's the highest level of narrative. Right? That's the biggest, fattest piece of the, of the puzzle. Right? Let's try, let's try. There's got to be some more out there. What do you guys think? Drew? This might not be right. But I was thinking, like, how do we... How do we quench our thirst, or how do we obtain living water? How do we deal with sin, or how do we something like that? Again, I think those are all a couple of levels, couple of levels down. Yeah, too specific, right? Again, the big idea is way, way, way up high, right? Again, the, 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 this this woman, she, I think those are exactly the things that she was concerned about, and Jesus kept trying to get her to step back and see that there was more to it than that. Oh, I want, how how do I get this water so I won't be thirsty anymore? No, 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 you're not seeing it. No, we want to worship on this mountain. No, 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 you're not seeing He wanted her to, I think I actually talked about that earlier on, right? That she was trying to get down granular, and he was trying to get her to see big picture. Uh, other thoughts? Yes? Uh, maybe, how should we respond after an interaction with Jesus? Hmm. Yeah, how about that? What's, what's an appropriate way to respond when, after an interaction with Jesus? Answer? She goes and tells everyone that. Yeah, right? My, my life has changed and yeah. I want to change the lives of others, you know? Yeah. Right. I, I think that's totally valid, yeah. right? Again, because it's, it's, it's dealing with the biggest issue, right? He meets her, her life changes, and what does she do, right? That's very, very top level. There's nothing real specific about that. I think that's actually pretty valid, right? How should I deal, how, how should I respond to a personal interaction with Jesus? With excitement and, yeah. and a desire to tell as many people as possible how awesome he is, right? And so in that, could that be a lesson on evangelism? Mm, more personal response than probably what to do, right? Because yeah. again, this passage is not about evangelism. Evangelism happens because of transformation. Yeah, right. So evangelism is the effect, it's not the cause. Right. Understand that? So again, again, this is where context, but you know, big idea, how do I respond to an interaction with Jesus with joy and gratitude and share with other people? I think that's, that's, that is a legitimate application. But I would not necessarily run, therefore, we all need to go share our faith. That, that's true enough. I don't know that I'd use this passage for that. I would probably focus on the transformative nature of the conversation, the personal interaction, the gentleness, the internal, the stuff that was going on with her because she's a woman. It's, it's that his interaction with her, the rest is, in a, in a sense, auxiliary data. So it's more like the heart change. Right, the transformation that she experiences, right? As a result of drinking the real living water. I would see John, there's a wordplay going on here in John. There's all kinds of other things linguistically that we would also probably deal with. Right, I saw another hand. Sean, you want to take another crack well, at it? I don't know, I might be getting a little bit farther, but uh, how should we shape our mindset to be like Jesus to reach out to different people? Hmm, let's, let's sharpen that a little bit. What do you think? 
I like, I like where you're going with that. Because Jesus reached out to a Samaritan woman, crossed borders, uh, broke all of that. His disciples come back and they said they were, they were surprised that he was talking that, That's certainly there, right? This Jesus kind of crossing over a normal culture yeah. on social boundaries. Yeah. So how would we phrase that in a way that's, again, more big picture, not too specific? How should we approach the world like Jesus? Is that too... That might be a little too broad, too but, broad. but um, how about something like, can anyone think of another way to state that that's in that general vein, ladies? How do we approach people that are different than us, or how do we share what we have with people maybe that are different than us, or yeah. maybe, sure, I think, sure, I mean, how do we have kind of that, an answer would be, you know, gentleness, patience, yeah. you know, whatever you see, and, you know, but again, like, like Jesus did with patience yeah. and gentleness, and, yeah. It kind of matter where she was at, those yeah. kinds of things, right? Um, it is noon straight up, so we're going to go ahead and take a break here uh, for lunch. Um, just before we do that, let's just walk through briefly what we've done uh, up to this point. Okay, so we've talked about text selection. We obviously spent a significant amount of time on the second chunk of our workflow here, Exit Jesus, and how specifically that gets into this whole idea of big idea exegetical and how working with the subject and the complement helps to sharpen our focus and, and make that idea rise, like we said, like a harvest moon, okay, um, on the headline. So I know we're on the horizon. So after lunch, I know Ed's going to spend some time talking about the big idea homiletical and beginning to bounce that idea off your audience, uh, and then we'll get into sermon purpose and deal with some other